Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Boom, we're on. And today's guest, we've got Kevin Lane. How are you, Kev? Fine, thanks, James, please. Yeah. First of all, thanks for coming on the show. You've just been released from prison two days ago. You spent over 20 years in prison fighting for your freedom over the murder of Robert McGill. Yeah. 1994. You get out, you've just done a recall, and that's you out now, free man again. First of all, how are you feeling? Tired. Why? Because uh, I've had a few late nights, well, two late nights indoors, um, and I get up at five, and it straight away it has its toll. I like to use the gym, get in there and keep fit. I like to be up and out and about. So you just need to adjust your timetable to this party mode sort of lifestyle where you're you're visiting people you're having a meal and a bottle of wine where you've not touched alcohol for some time and then of course you're, you, you're going to bed off a bottle of wine it makes you feel sleep a bit heavier mm-hmm. but I feel great feeling tired today I feel a little bit but I, <laughs> I'm gonna make sure I get um, an early night this evening and I'll get back into my routine, back in the gym. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel good, though. We'll touch on the case in a, in, in a bit, but I always go back to the start of my case, my guest, Kev. Where you grew up and how it all began? Okay, I grew up in Harefield, Middlesex, beautiful village. Uh, lovely place to grow up in as a kid. You had a lot of fish stalls and stuff, a lot of pubs. A nice tourist, tourist not tourist, but known for pub calls back in its day because of the, obviously, the amount of pubs in there. It's a lovely village, nice common. So I grew up there, went to school there. My brothers and sisters are from there. Uh, My mum moved when we all fled the nest. But uh, predominantly, we're based from there. I went to John Penrose Academy, got expelled from there. I went to a school. From there, I got work. I've worked as a child all my life. from the infants I've worked, whether it's a gardening round or uh, I went to a paper round, paper round to a baker's, baker's to a chip shop, chip shop to work in four days a week with a local builder, Josh Clack. I loved working with Josh. Um, great builder, big family in the area. Taught me a lot. Uh, and I had four days work release. So I started work as an early man, early age. I moved into a flat at 15 with a friend of mine who was 18, which was great. I just met the first love of my life, so that was handy. We didn't have parents looking over us. <laughs> she lured me, of course. <laughs> Mild flirtation went well. As they do. Uh, they do. I didn't know what hit me. And we had a flat to grow. To. And she was the mother of my two eldest boys, Aaron and Tommy, and that's Kim Purcell, real lady, real classy girl. Still a beautiful lady today. Excellent mother. Went on to marry, obviously we went to prison. It's no good waiting 20 years for a man in prison. And there's two boys to be brought up. And she went and met a man and she married him. She's the only one man she met and she's still with him today. So she's a good woman, Kim. Um, so I met her when I went to Southbourne. I fancied her mate. Right? And someone told me she fancied me. So well, I thought, well, she's all right as well. So I went with her. And I'm glad I did because, uh, yeah, she, yeah, she's more suited. So then I had two children. 
Aaron and Tommy, like I say, uh, carried on working, did really well with work. I like work. Where did you get that ingrained into you from a young age to? What was that come from, mum or dad? Well, dad was a groundsman. He did pipe, uh, laid the grounds of building houses. Grounds worker. Not as in ten- tennis courts and stuff, yeah. but ground. Who gave you the nudge, though, to keep to be grafting at a young age and working hard to make your own money? Well, mum and dad split up when I was young. When I was, you? Yeah, massively so, because you do have hand-me-downs and you get your brother's car- jumper or a knitted cardigan. And I wanted my own clothes. So by the time I was 12, I was buying my own clothes for school, different outfit every single day with a different watch at 12. Loved having your own money to decide what you wanted to do and to look smart in different pair of shoes each day for school. So, and I've gone on in that manner. My children have done the same. So um, it's nice to be a structure to your life. Apart from the past two chaotic days, should I say? But if you've got structure and you can then embed structure into children, they go forward in their life a lot better. How about you at school, Kev? Um, I like to laugh. It's <laughs> <laughs> a beautiful thing to laugh, isn't it? <laughs> well, it costs nothing. It makes yeah. you feel good. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm nobody's dope. I'm, I educated myself in my sentence. I drafted my own representations in, in that my barrister said I'm the most well-informed person he's ever represented. So I'm proud of that, that 20 years of no TV, studying and reading has done a lot for me. And I did separate studies too, working on my case all the time. But I loved school and I, I did get expelled for shenanigans, just having too much energy. And I remember seeing a child psychologist and he said, there's nothing wrong with him, he's just got loads of energy. I'd play sport every, all day long, whatever I could do, whether it's carrying a bag of golf clubs around a golf course, just to be involved in it, I would go and do it. I would turn up at the men's 11 cricket team when I was 12 just to get a game and get that ball hit you and you think, shit, it's coming at me and it's, been, it's coming like a rocket. But you, I couldn't, I didn't, I was bleeding. I remember one instant like that, playing for the men's first team to make the numbers up so you go on the pitch, cast the bleeding ball's coming at me. And I'm not kidding, it hit my hands and he broke them. But uh, I got three cakes and a nice meal at lunchtime. Yeah. <laughs> How was it? Um, when was the first time you got into trouble, Kev? Uh, uh, I got arrested for a fight when I was 15, 16, with an elderly lad, a little bit older than me, a few years older than me, over a burger. Broke his nose, got arrested, uh, assault. That was 15, 16. Um, I was going out with Kim by then. So it started around about then, really. And I got the 24 hours detention centre for that, which was... Uh, it, it didn't deter me, men screaming at you, you know, using force on you. I don't think force and screaming at you is the best way to make someone listen. The quieter word spoken is far better. People listen more attentively. Yeah. And children listen better when you speak to them quietly, as most adults do. So that didn't work for me. And I, but I've always worked, James. And I, nonetheless, although I had a, a little bit of, you know, fisty cuffs here and there, it was only ever really because people would take me for a fool. And I looked very young at the time and very small. And I had a very pretty young lady on my arm, which attracts a lot of attention and trouble. 
when you're young. Jealousy. Yeah, men won't behave appropriately around a lady or they say something or try and touch her or they come up to you while you're with her because you look a, like a college boy. But it normally ended up in tears by then because I was young and fiery, you know, think you know the world. Carrying your nuts around in a wheelbarrow at 16 and onwards, aren't you? So, yeah, young age, really. You've done a lot of boxing as well, Kev, is that true? In the gym, yeah, I fight in the so gym. So you could handle yourself? I had a go. <laughs> I've got a bleeding it or not, I've got to tell you, I did get it. Uh-huh. Although I look like this, I did get it. <laughs> How was it then, your early 20s? Did you, did you do it? What was the, your biggest sentence? I started before? when I was young. My uh, Auntie June, my dad took me first and then my Auntie June took me because my dad and mum separated. So my Auntie June took me to uh, channel my energies in the right direction. And I'll never forget it. I, uh, I loved it. And then I went back, I didn't, as a junior, and then I went back as a sen- senior at 14, really. Not a senior, but at 14. And my knees went. So I couldn't do no sport from 14 to 18. But inflammation on the knees, just doing too much as a young kid, and I was growing. So I then went back at 18, uh, and then I got banged up. But I've always liked getting in the ring and putting yourself against someone else. But a skill, and it is a skill. You, you've not got another 11 players to help you through that game, have you? If it's like you lose 11-0 at football, you've lost 11-0 of 11 players. You lose 11-0 in boxing, you've had a good hiding, and you're on your own. And you've got to respect the person who's opposite you to get in the ring and have a go, haven't you? Yeah. So what did you get a jail at 18 for? I got a 20. Uh, oh, sorry, I got 18. Uh, at 18, I went for... It's a bit more than that. When I was 21, I went for kidnapping. I kidnapped a gentleman and who and his friends were stealing equipment from a friend of mine. He was a businessman. Um, he went to the police. The police didn't have no enough evidence. <coughs> And there was a young lady who threatened, who, who informed on them to m- my friend, the boss. And these individuals who were stealing from that company went and threatened the girl. But they threatened the girl with a knife and she had a baby with her. They said, we'll cut you and the baby. And so my friend phoned me up and said, listen, this, these fellas have uh, made some threats. The police can't do nothing about it. Can you get it sorted out? But don't you go, he said. I said, I won't go. I won't go. Well, I did go. And I got done for kidnapping, took this fellow away, roughed him up a bit, thinking, you know, putting the world to rights. It was wrong what I did. But you think it's right. But you can't have no one threatening a girl with a knife, can you? And a baby. And, and, like, and the police can't do nothing about it. They don't have enough evidence. In fact, the fellow we kidnapped weren't the one that threatened the girl with the knife, but he was one of the the uh, gang from Reading. So I sent a message to him, and I went to prison for that. I'll never forget when I got parole. They asked me about it. said, would you do it again? I went, yes. <laughs> Why? Because I believed at the time. I'm laughing about it, saying how stupid I was. But at the time... You feel, yes, I would do it again if you, you know, the, the moral code of what's right and what's wrong. I didn't get parole. I've got two weeks. Mm-hmm. That's it. What did you do when you came out for the, the, after your first sentence? I went straight to work. Doing what? 
I set a yard up, a commercial yard. Um, I had a security company prior to that, which I purchased when I was a young man. And I purchased the name of a company and then changed the name, not the brightest move. But I wanted to get into the security for the camera security. Um, a friend of mine has since passed, he was somewhat older than me, but he had a good business sense in offices and such. So we was going to partner up and I'd be the salesman and he would handle the the mail shots, the targeting of the various businesses. Uh, and I got arrested for the kidnapping, so I never made the... the I had an appointment in Alice Court with an American company to do camera security, and I never made that. And I would have branched off then into the camera security, and look where it is now. It's everywhere. So that was, you know, 32 years ago I was going to do that. And so when I came home from the kidnapping... I was made into a decal. I got. I never forget it because I went to prison and I got. I had a hung jury, um, and then I had a second trial. Uh, I didn't give evidence, and it was. I never forget it. It was in May and it was really hot, and we was in the court. It was beaming hot, and the judge put the jury into a, jury, a hotel room, and they came back the next day. Some of the women had the same clothes on, and he was then going to put them out into a hotel for the weekend. But they went out, came back in, guilty verdict, within no time at all, literally, turnaround. I've gone downstairs to confer with my, my barrister. We got called back upstairs. The jury wanted to came back in. And they said they made a wrong decision. And the judge said, I've got to take your first answer. And I said, it's not a game show, but I'm lucky. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of women were crying, some blokes were shaking their head. And I think it was all due to being put in a hotel again. So we went, uh, I understand there's going to be immediate appeal. And he gave, he gave me four lots of two to run con uh, concurrent instead of consecutively. So instead of getting an eight, I got a two. Uh, and he believed, he said like you was, um, what has he called me? Uh, um, vigilante. That's what he called me, the judge. He said, you, you're not a vigilante, you can't put the world to right. But two years, two years, two years, go to prison. I thought, touch. I've done six months on my mind. I got bail. Police got caught out lying um, for that crime. That's how I got bail and I went back yeah. and I got sentenced again. Um, the police, they phoned a witness up and said, can we meet you at the end of the road? So this witness came out, got in the back of the car, and there was my photographs and my file in the back. And she kept referring to me as Kevin during the trial at the old-style committal that was. My boss said, why do you keep referring to Mr. Lane as Kevin? She said, oh, I've seen his file. The police phoned me up, asked me to meet me at the end of the road, wrote a new statement out and asked me to sign it. So I identified him. So when I was on the identification, I didn't get picked out. And she said, it looks like him, but it's not him. But the chief inspector wrote, it looks like him. Yes, it's him. She said, I never said that. So I got immediate bail. And then I went away again as I just explained, when I came back with the wrong decision, I came out and I set up a yard to do metal recycling and clothes even. Um, I did a couple of raves with Judge Jules, Denny Rampling, Roy De Roach. I did four raves, actually. Went really well. Ticket sales only um, in the yard. Uh, Never carried on with the rubbish. I rented the yard out, so I drew rents from the yard. 
and I've got a, yeah. half decent living out of mm-hmm. that. And I was still doing the security. But again, I brought the security company to branch into camera security. But it brought in a lucrative living. Mm-hmm. I was getting a nice living, weekly. You know, on a bad week. Back then, you know, so 34 years ago, 800 quid, 1,200 pound, sometimes two grands, sometimes a bit more. Over a month, I might have 8,000 pound for a young man, ducking and diving. Hey, what was the ribs like? The ribs were great when they... Did you ever cross up. Andrew Pritchard? No, I didn't, no. Mm-hmm. No, they were good raids back in the... Do you know what? I know that name, though. Yeah. And, uh, they started Genesis. Yeah, and Rainbow. Yeah. As the Rainbow was another mm-hmm. Sunrise. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know the Andrew Pritchard name. I just used to supply security for them and there were a load of venues, clubs and pubs. But it took up too much time. Were you taking drugs yourself back then? No, no. I didn't start drinking until I was 21. Uh, I did dabble, I had an E or two, and they was good. Um, didn't smoke. Back in the day, when things were different, like the flower power, that was like um, Woodstock. That's what the ease was like. Back in the day. Free love, kind of. Free power, love. Yeah. Bloody loved everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Give me an aid. I should have given me mm. out more often. <laughs> Obviously not like now because of the rubbish they put in them. But back, you never heard of some, like, death. So there was death. It was Leah Best, but that was a bad, obviously many years ago down in Basildon. You probably recall the same as me. It was a lot cleaner then. And there was, I'm not condoning drugs, of course, but you know, from the Woodstock days and stuff, people are going to take drugs. But I wish they was of the quality they was then. Now. Yeah, it's all mixed with shit. Sure, back it's crap. It was white doves, Mitsubishis, and people were... Pff. But, again, it's... no. There's no such thing as a good drug. Cause it's well, they give MDMA up, to right? soldiers. Yeah, it's good for them. They say the brain. The brain. Um, MDMA. i done a thing called ayahuasca as well, which says a plant medicine, but I'm still unsure at all. No, I'm all about trying to do I've heard of ayahuasca. Did that take you off? Like, um, oh, you'd have to take it a few times, don't yeah, you? Yeah, it's a four-day ceremony. So when you, when you drink it, they say it reconnects you with your soul. They say yeah. it makes you face all your fears and demons and there's a shortcut to happiness. I'm still unsure. I don't trust anybody, Kev. So even yeah. they kept telling me to surrender towards it. I was fighting it. Yeah, you've got I wanted to open, bank control. You? Yeah, you've got to totally surrender. But it's each to our own. I'm trying to do everything natural now with the cold water stuff and... Meditation. Got to train, you? Yeah, you've got to do what's right for you. As long as you're not harming anyone, then so be it. So when you were in your early twenties, you were making hold money. Oh, are you any good at dancing? Not too bad. Try dancing. That might help you out. <laughs> do you dance? Get down the salsa yeah. club. <laughs> Have you been dancing? I love a bloody dance. Do I was you? dancing overnight, landing airplanes, you were changing light bulbs. Yeah. <laughs> Fixing light switches. <laughs> <laughs> when you were in your twenties making money, you had the business mindset. Were you still violent after you get out of jail, after the the kidnapping? Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to... See, the violence is... I, was, I could have a fight back in the day for a young man, but I don't like it. I just don't like violence. I may have been nicked for it, and I may be pretty good at it in terms of holding my hands up. But I actually, I wouldn't go to clubs in the area where there was known for fighting at the weekends. I thought, I'm having I'm going now, I don't want to fight. I wouldn't go. I never went to one club once called Bogarts in South Fair. Not once. 
Never took my girlfriend there, the mother of my children. No chance. Fighting her every week. And I thought, well, do you know what? If I'm going to be going to the clubs, I don't drink. I've just started boxing again. I was doing all right anyway. I bought my first house, a flat when I was 18. And I earned all right out of that. Uh, when the property market was booming. So I was always doing little bits and pieces. And I bought a house uh, by then. I was buying and selling cars. And I had some lovely cars. You know, Porsches and stuff like that. Where they'd be 150 grand, 100 grand now. Paid for cash. Out of Barclay Square and Henley's. Things like that. So I was doing really well. Um, I've lost my pattern of thought there. So... Uh, so what was we saying about? Well, you're just doing well in your early twenties. I see you're still violent. Yeah, mate. but the violence—it's yeah. like it just comes if you're young and you're out in the clubs. And were you feared at a young age, Kev, or were you respected? Respect is a big difference, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. You can fear someone because he'll stab you, but you can respect somebody because he will stand his ground, and he may be the smallest fella or the biggest fella, but he might be the biggest fella with the smallest heart. So. I respect everybody and I don't uh, misjudge anybody at all, anybody. But I believe you can have people's respect from being transparent and decent and don't go treading on people's toes. I was like, don't tread on mine because I'll stamp on yours if you do. Leave me alone, I'll leave you alone. But back in the day, if you cost me, I would take umbrage with it and make sure that we had a set to, which isn't clever. You know, you're young and uh, I wish I'd done a lot of things different. Maybe if my father had been around and hadn't died when I was a young man. How old were you? Well, I was 21 when my father died. But they separated, as I said, my mother and my father. And I didn't see much of my dad. And Did that play a massive effect on you with the anger and the violence, the frustration, the kind of abandonment issues? You don't think of the abandonment issues until you go to prison and you hear it. But of course, so you turn up for play your, foot, your game of football and you'd be there an hour early, waiting. No one else there, just, I'd get there early. I'm wishing my dad was there. And it, it does have an effect on you, because I think my dad would have kept me in tow. My dad, I'm the only one that looks like my daddy, he's Scottish. Um, good jocks. <laughs> <laughs> Cockney jock. Yeah. So, yeah, if I'd had a, a, a male figure in the house who I looked up to as a father, then yes. But I didn't. Yeah, if your dad goes, then if it's free reigns to try and figure it out for yourself to grow up fast. I was fighting by the time I was in the infants. My brother had a, a car accident. He got hit uh, by a car, nearly died. He had all plates in his head. He was flown to a hospital by a helicopter. He had a Mr. Magoo crash helmet. Kids can be, you know, spiteful, mm. unfortunately. They don't mean to be. Were you speaking to your dad before he died? Well, um, I was, and... I went to prison and they just got phones in the prison then, but you had to make it not on the landings, it was in a little office and you had to book it. So the last time I would have spoke to him was at his deathbed, but they didn't jack the call up. So I missed it and I phoned home, Kim. She obviously knew I hadn't been told because they'd phoned the prison and said that her father's going to pass away and everything's failing. Um, he'd like to speak to his son and obviously the prison couldn't jack it up. So when I did get the phone call, I was told my father had passed away. Did that piss you off? And now did you crack up? Or did you just go back to your cell and get the head down? I went back to my cell. No TVs then, although I didn't have a TV for my 20 years. Uh, very bleak cell. So you prison teaches you to harden it. It, it. 
builds character, many different types of characters. And I recall sitting on a, a table at a window, no curtains, outside all lit up, and a dog handler walked past. And he said, you all right, mate? It was about 2 in the morning, 2.30 in the morning, something like that. And he said, you all right? I said, yeah, I'm okay, mate. Lovely evening. Lovely evening, mate. Thank you. Off he went. And I thought, in a cell, your dad's dead. Nothing on the walls. You've just been locked up for kidnapping. You haven't been in the prison six weeks. And it's a new prison, Bullingdon. So there's new staff. It was mayhem, really. And then your dad dies. And they had to make me a decat to go to his funeral. Well, where I spent six months on remand, and then I got a two-year sentence, I owned my own home at that age. I had a business. I had children. So I wasn't a flight risk. And they made me a DCAT. And I went. I got picked up. I got dropped off. I was carried through the gate. Left me sleep down reception. Woke me up. Carried me back to the cell at me. I was smashed. I thought, oh, boy. Dad's died. We'll have a drink. And I've never really been a drinker. I'm a, I started drinking later in life, but I went back to prison that day drunk. Mm. Nothing happened. Staff said, Dad's dead. What do you expect? Yeah. Let's, um, we'll touch on now the, the case that you spent over 20 years. You were convicted of murder for Robert McGill in 1994. Mm. And over 20 years, you've been fighting for your freedom to get the case overturned. Let's touch on the couple of weeks running up to 1994. Were you known by the police then, Kev? Yeah, known by the police. I've got, uh, I'd had a few run-ins with them over the years, ringing cars. That's quite lucrative back in the day. Just very lucrative. Still? Yeah, uh, it's very lucrative, yeah. But um, I worked though, James. I still worked, even though I, you know, I'd buy a stolen recovered car for four grand, get some interior fitted into it, sell it for 14. I was making a lot of money back then. Um, but the police were, I was known to them for the cars. I got nicked by Scotland Yard, stolen car squad. Had a few fights from the doors. Um, got stabbed there. But I took the knife off the person and stabbed him back with it. I got arrested for that. Um, Not self-defence? Well, it was, I, I, regards of taking his knife off of him, mm -hmm. um, I stuck it back in with a handful of times. And I shouldn't have done that. Obviously. Self-defence. So yeah. <laughs> I went to court though, got a not guilt. I laugh about it, but I was thinking, you know, he pulled the knife out of me. Not that. Was, obviously, caught me. And that was there. There was a big scar that was many years ago, literally. And the one above it, you can put your finger in it. So I got arrested for that and bits and pieces like that, yeah. So, did you know Robert McGill? No, never. And... When did the police come knocking at your door for that murder? Um, How many months after it, or weeks after it, or was it days after I, it? I got arrested on the 10th of January. Um, that was in the 95? Yeah. And when they released me, I thought he's saying right this. Uh, they arrested me at Hexham Magistrates Court. I had a fight with some rugby players, which is in my book, Fit Up and Fighting Back. Which is out now, which people can get on Amazon. 
get on Amazon and uh, all my social platforms under the same name. If you want to support me and see material that's available in relation to that book. So, and it's, the facts are in there about being arrested at Hexham Magistrates Court. I had a fight with a couple of rugby players. Um, I got arrested for it. Went back to appear at court. I got arrested at court for the Bob McGill murder. Taken down the motorway with blue lights, front and back, armed police. I think, what's going on here? And, uh, I remember Spackman coming to my... Like, this, and this is a copper who ended up being corrupt and getting charged himself for yeah. tampering with other people's evidence and yeah. being a wronging. And I couldn't quite make it out. I was thinking, oh, I ain't done it, so I'll be okay. Famous last words. Like the ice cream was. Yeah, Joe Steele and T.C. Campbell. T.C. Campbell, years and years. And Bridgewater 3, the Birmingham 4, the Guildford 6. Five appeals some of those, and those lads had before they finally said, didn't do it. Um, and I got released from Watford Police Station. But at that time, Roger Vincent, he'd been arrested with David Smith. They were the original suspects going around, bragging that they'd done it, calling themselves Ronnie and Reggie. And I still don't know which one thinks he's Ronnie, but I'd like to find out. So it amused me. So they was telling people, like they say, there was Ronnie and Reggie, uh, a number of other factors in relation Roger to Roger Vincent and David, David Smith. Smith. Yeah, I didn't know at that time that they had had confidential chats with the police. With the informants? Yes. Asked to speak to the police on a confidential basis. Signed it in five places. Custody record. Can't get out of it. Taken to the interview room for these requests. And they were kept from me. But at the time, I was in the police station, Smackman shot up to see Vincent in Woodhill Prison. And then there's a gentleman in the book, and I don't keep want to refer to that, but the book sets out my case for you all to read and judge for yourself based on the evidence that's put before you. And they went to Vincent. And I believe they went to him to say, right, we've got Lane in the police station. You've told us he did the murder and you've told us another other factors about what you say he's done. And he, he put me forward for another two murders. Um, and I'm saying, well, go and speak to him if he knows so much about them. That's what I say now. Because I've never been arrested for a murder until now. Um, and the fellow that was... So Bob McGill was murdered. And there was a shotgun used on the murder. That shotgun was sold by Roger Vincent to a gentleman called Tam Jury. Tam Jury came forward. He said, I've seen, been told to look at this website, blah, 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 blah. I've been up all night, contacting my solicitor. He said, I bought the gun, he said, used in this murder. I bought it off of Roger Vincent. Now, he looks like he has glass in his porridge, this Tam Jury. You know, he's a Glaswegian. He's, you know, a tough old cookie. And he bought the gun because he needed a bit of protection. He was having some trouble at the time, back in his day. He came forward and said, I bought the gun. Roger Vincent sold it to me. Two weeks after he sold it to me, he phoned me up and said, don't get caught with that gun. He said, he's blown someone's head off with it. It's hot. Right. So then I then get arrested. Tam Jury dumps a gun in, in the sea. I get arrested. Spackman shoots up to see Vincent. Smith has been released as well. He's not been reminded. Smith phones Tam Jury up and says, we want to buy the gun back. 
we give you more than you paid for it and we'll come and get it. He said, but it's mental, you've used it on a murder. And he said, no, it's in the North Sea now. But the timeline of that happening shows that I was in the police station, Spackman shot up to see Vincent, trying to get some evidence on me to plant, which would have been the gun, and then Smith's phoned Tam Joy to get the gun back. He couldn't get the gun back, but that's what they were going to try and do at that time. I got bailed. Of course, they're still building a case around me. I wasn't arrested due to the evidence that they had. The evidence took them elsewhere. Like the gentleman who got caught with a car used in the murder, or was supposedly used in the murder, said he got it for Vincent Smith. Is that a red BMW? BMW. Was your DNA in the boot of the red BMW on a bag? They say so, yeah, but there's the Panorama programme on YouTube, fitted up and fighting back, quite clearly shows what took place there. So they says that you had a bag, no gun in it, no gun residue, but potentially the way you're holding the bag, as if you're holding a gun? They said that there was nitroglycerin and dinitrolerin in the bag, which is consistent with having a gun in there. But it was one particle. And as I said, the Panorama programme shows that you get contaminated on a train. If you, was, uh, if you had a licence for a gun and you went shooting, touching you, I would get contaminated. Pretty much a dead cert. You'd have it all in your car. You'd have it everywhere. And they turned around and said, I'd gripped a gun inside a bag and the line on my palm were consistent with gripping a Mossberg pump action in that bag. And they said that to the jury. And the jury thinking, oh, so he's gripped a gun in a bag. Now that bag's had ammunition in it or it's had a gun in it. He must know something. And I'm sitting there thinking, how can they get away with this? I knew I hadn't gripped a gun in a bag. And at that point there, where they're coming out of statements like that, I knew I was buggered. I thought, I'm getting fitted up here. Because they're making statements of untruth. The red BM, your son's DNA was in the, the yeah, fingerprints. So you, that was your car. How did they end up getting that car? Well, I had a car. I had a Ford Cosworth, you know, like um, well, yeah, right. when it first came out. Yeah, yeah, fast. I had one of them. And it got stolen off my drive. Over the next course of a few days, I started looking at another car. Couldn't see one I wanted. And that was offered to me, to borrow. So he said, it's in the car park, I'm doing a bit of work. Of course, BMW, I've been to look at two BMWs over that weekend, an Astra, an XR2, what they do for running around in. And then, but they were too expensive, so I didn't buy them in terms of, they were only too much money for the car. So I've gone to the, pick this BMW up in the Reindeer Public House. Of course, it was a bit of an old banger. I took it back two days later, so, but I'd had it in my possession. So I'd had my car stolen, borrowed that car, give the car back, that car was seen being driven by another uh, male with dark hair. Two days after, I dropped the car back by a police officer that knows me and says it wasn't Kevin Lane driving that car, by which time I'd returned the car. Mm -hmm. So wh who's that in between? How long was your case on for? Mm. How long did it run for? Well, I had a 13-day trial. Which isn't pretty long for a murder trial. No, and 21 days. Mm. Uh second time was 11, actually. So your first trial, you got, uh, there was no evidence it got thrown out? Hung were, jury. Yeah, hung jury. So, But your co-accused was, was it Vincent or was it Smith? Vincent was, he was kept in different prisons up and down the country. He was having police visits, which again, I've got proof of. Is that from, the first case that you two were in the dock together? Yeah, never knew Vincent. And he got let go, but it was only you that stood trial yourself? Yeah. So you never know any of those men, Smith or... No, Smith. Smith would come into a, a club I used to work the door at a few times. But it just... Uh, I didn't know him as in terms of knockabout of him. And Vincent, I'll never forget, 
When he did eventually come to Belmarsh Unit, after being moved around the country for police visits, when we was driving to, in the, you know, the, all the armed police around us in the vans, being bounced around, going round roundabouts the wrong way, he chirped up. He said, I remember you, he said. You used to come round and collect your monies from the pubs for your security. I know, did you? Now, he said that, but there's police officers in the back of that prison van that shouldn't have been there. They didn't need to be in the van. And they was there writing everything down. But no, I never knew Vincent. So when you got away with it the first time with the hung jury, were you thinking, okay, never hear from it again? Or did you realise that we're trying to build a bigger case against you? Well, I knew things were wrong by... I had money sent to me in Spain. That money, no records of that. I knew banks kept records, but the police had been in there and searched the records before my solicitor, Thomas Cook and stuff like that. Uh, they presented information forward to the court that I knew was wrong. Um, and I was getting worried then. More so when they... We found out, I didn't find out this for years later, but I sensed something was wrong. I said, there's something going on. I said, I can't put my finger on it, but there's some untoward going on here. Which came apparent years later when I got my solicitor's case file. I said, can I have your file? I want to go through it see what letters you've sent, timelines and such. Because I wrote over 10,000 letters while I didn't have the TV and just threw myself into my case. And in my solicitor's custody uh, uh, case file, there was notes. And in the notes, he's turned around and said, bumped into Officer Spackman in the corridor. Told me the split of the jury. Now, whatever goes on in the jury room is sacrosanct. It's not meant to... Whatever goes in, it doesn't leave there. He told my solicitor the split of the jury. He said, it's eight to four. And we're going for another trial, he says, if, uh, if, uh, if you get a hung jury on the next one as well. Now, how did he know what was going on in that jury room? Shouldn't have happened. And I believe that one of the police, there was a police officer who was the foreman on that jury. I believe he was a policeman. Great, but I don't think police should be in the jury. And I don't think they should have 24-hour armed protection most of the time, just so they can get spoken to. By a police officer, yeah, you become friendly can, with. You can turn the jury against oh. the defendant. Armed police on the roof, mm-hmm. helicopter taking me to that court. That doesn't look good though when it goes on in the papers and the news and juries see that because they then start thinking this guy is proper. The kids used to come and see me in prison. I say, Uncle Kevin, what are you in prison for? I say, frying stones at low flying airplanes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 and then I thought about the helicopter above mm-hmm. the uh, the van. So what was the evidence then from the first case that done you for the second case? Did they have new evidence? Or was it just a retrial? There's no new evidence. It was just what Vincent had told them off the record. I was responsible for a number of murders that had unsolved. So that made me quite high profile in, in the eyes of the, um, the the police. So a hitman? Yeah, a hitman. And I was a Hoover salesman, Hoover cleaner. I'm not smiling about it, having a laugh, but, you know, um, I was going to call my book Hitman or Hoover Salesman, you decide with a question mark. That's why I smile about it. Okay, so, yeah, so in their eyes, and, and uh, so, you know, one of these murders was discussed in the House of Commons and a com- uh, another country suspended links with England over it. It's quite a high-profile murder. Uh, and other murders that, again, it's common knowledge who committed those murders within the criminal fraternity and outside of that now because they're like Charlie Wilson someone mentioned that with me I said well uh, you want to check the dates of that Jill Dan I said I was, I was uh, 
working with the police on that. They'd come and seen me, and I didn't agree with the murder. They made a public apology, said, no, we haven't seen him, he wouldn't talk to us. I wouldn't. So the evidence against me in my second trial was pretty much the same as the first, but they just... They get better at it. I had a, a clever prosecutor, very intelligent man. You're in there under a lot of pressure. You're in the special secure unit. You're not getting the evidence that you're asking for. I mean, I got statements off of a fellow uh, involved in the case. And Leonard Bennett, he was given a car by Vincent and Smith to burn. His statements were withheld from me for a number of years till after I was convicted. 2007 Why? I got them. Why is that? Because he says Vincent Smith gave him the car and asked him to burn it. So if they'd have produced him in court, they dropped the charges and he said I was paid to dispose of the car. They dropped the charges on him because if they'd pursued the charges on him, he'd have been in the dock with me and Vincent. They'd have had to give his statements to us, which they withheld, and I, I never even knew they'd existed at the time. And it would have took the case in another direction. So where there was evidence that took the case in elsewhere, that was suppressed and withheld. And they went with me. So in 1996, you get found guilty. What's going through your mind then, Kev, when you're getting a life sentence for murder? Your life flashes by you. You think, kids, I'm not going to see them now. And I was aware that once you get convicted, that's when the fight really begins, because you're convicted. Many people have their struggles trying to overturn their convictions are mindful of that. It was a long battle. And you just know then that you, your whole life is going to change. You're going into a hellhole, especially when I was in the unit at the same time, thinking I'm now going into the high security estate, Whitemore, Full Sutton, Long Larton, very vicious places, dangerous. But I don't, you know, it's not something you want, is it? And your life's over is what you think. Your children, You've not been there for them whilst you've been on remand. You never had a father. No, your children haven't got a father. Well, I knew I was in trouble because I knew the evidence had been fabricated. And I was triple category A. I was the only man in the country, triple A, held on remand. I was on remand with the IRA godfathers who escaped out of Whitemore Unit with an armed astute with Andy Russell, who also flew a helicopter into Gartry many years ago and landed on a football pitch. So they place you at that grade. You've got a long way to go before you get considered to be released because you're considered to be too dangerous. So you've got to go triple A, double A, single A, B, C, D. Well, I was still at ACAT 16 years into my sentence up until some paperwork came alight and caused the prison service to treat me like a hot potato and get rid of me. I would have stayed cat A and never been released for many, many, many more years over my tariff. I did go over my tariff, but I'd have done 25, 30 years. And I'll never forget, there was a, a, a member of staff who came up on the landing when I got downgraded. Because first of all, I'll, I'll rewind, the prison directorate come, he was waiting outside my prison, outside my prison cell. And I said, hello, Danny. Danny McAllister, Scotchman, Right staunch governor. If he was wrong, he'd tell you he was wrong. He'd tell the staff they was wrong and all, and he'd give it to him. A proper fella. And I always respected him and Governor Perry and Whitemore. Sit down at your table and say, hey, how are you lads, all right? 
we want to hear what's going on in terms of is my nick being run right? Are these are the guards pulling the wool over my eyes? And they listened to you, right? And I respected that. So he's outside my cell and he says, is that uh, right, what I've heard about this paperwork? I said, it is, yeah. He said, I've come to tell you I've put something in place in relation to your Category A. And I thought, God, is he come to tell me that I'm being made back up to AAA because they're saying I'm now orchestrating getting paperwork out of the police system from within prison? And I'll respect it coming from him so I won't kick off and, uh, you know, go nuts, you know, I've fought all these years to get out and I'm going back up the ladder. Anyway, he didn't, 16 days later. Uh, Caff, real nice screw. I don't mind, you know, thank God for the good in the job. It'd be a terrible place if they was all arseholes, wouldn't it? And we need the good in the job. And all those that throw scorn on that, they want to think about when there's been a member of staff that's done something for them, when they've had a family death or an important phone call or an important visit, well, they've sorted it. And if it weren't for them, the place would be a lot worse. And this lady, Caff, she was a real nice lady, wouldn't talk to you if she knew you as an arsehole and you weren't respectful around women or was a bit, bit of a smell around your case. She'd answer your questions. But to her to have a conversation with you, you felt privileged because she was a nice lady. She told me I'll come off the cutty. She said, Kevin, I've got something to tell you. I said, have your cat what's that? She says, you're a cat B. And it was lovely coming from her. So I got taken off the cat, cat A then to cat B. Went in a governor's meeting. They called me in. Said, where do you want to go? I thought, oh, go to Rye or Private Nick. They're like hotels. And they process you quicker because everyone that comes through the gate there is money. So the quicker they get you out, they get more money in, don't they? And they were sitting talking about me like I weren't there. Phone Rye or they said. Tell them he's done every course he needs to have done if he hasn't done it just to get him there. And you always... Yeah, there's a lot goes on behind the scenes that you're not, you never party to. You, you believe's happening, and I witnessed and see it with my own ears. They can send you where they want, when they want, and they lie to each other just to get you out of their prison or to get you into another one. And I went to Royal. So, what was that like? Bloody holiday camp. How many years after it take you to get there? Sixteen. Still a long time, Kev. How many years did it take? into your sentence when you realised that Spackman was bent and he, get, he started getting charged. I think he had then people he'd, he'd got convictions with, got their cases overturned. So were you thinking then that there's a chance for me to get out? How many years were you into the... Well, I, I was 2002. Um, so still early on into your sentence? Yeah. Seven years? 22 cases were review, reviewed by uh, CPS and they found none of them wanting. And yet a case called Khan and Bashir went to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, and that's in the book. And it is absurd how that case never got referred prior to going to the CCRC without Spackman being arrested. What he did in that case is, is just, it's in the book. Fit it up and fight him back, another plug. So, yeah, quickly. Um, and they fobbed me off. And I thought I'd be going home based on, at that time I knew about the confidential chats that Vincent had had. Um, and I said, well, that's an unfair trial because I should have been able to attack my accuser, not literally, of course, but ask him how come he knows so much about a murder when you're charged with murder as a joint enterprise. So if, if he did it, I did it. If I did it, he did it. And yet he's given information to the police whilst charged with murder in the police station about the murder, how much was paid, how the murder was done. 
then surely that should have been put to the jury, shouldn't it? And he should have been asked to ask questions on that. Answer questions, should I say. So, I felt at that time, with Spackman, and these questions not being answered, that I, I knew then I wasn't getting a fair hit at it. And they sent me back, didn't I go back to prison? Mm -hmm. Stay there. Roger Vincent and Dave Smith, 10 years later, is it King? Somebody King get murdered yeah. as well. It was a kind of same set up as the McGill murder. McGill got shot five times, broad daylight. King was shot a few times, broad daylight. They eventually get charged for that. Did you ever reach out to the two? If they've already been charged for a murder, to put their hands up if you thought they'd done the first one? No. Vincent, when I found out about his confidential chats, he came away for the Davy King murder. He knew there was conflict between myself and him because he never did anything to help me. Um, never contacted me uh, when I was in prison after that. Not at all. Did you try and reach them? No. Someone gave him some money for me and he pocketed it. Gave him a load of designer clothes as well when he went home. Two people, in fact, I know, gave him money. Uh, Sean Shinquin, renowned English boxer. He got fired a year when he was a professional. His nephew was Miles Shinquin, the Southern Air title last year, I think. Uh, he gave him money. Vincent Bindi. He said, you're Kevin's Cody. Wallop, give him some money. My Cody. For I'm leading. Yeah, Bindi. That's the type of character he was. And he's telling people, like, that's the way it goes. He says he's been found guilty of it. What do you expect me to do? Well, I didn't know when it first happened. It set me up to take the fall. Who do you think killed Robert McGill? Well, the, I wasn't there. But I know that the evidence brought the police to Vincent's door and Smith's door. And... Subsequently, since then, I've uncovered a, a whole wealth of material that does take the picture or paint the picture a lot clearer. And, you know, I'm not going to say who committed the murder, but I know I, know I never, and I know that the police evidence does take it elsewhere. And that's been suppressed and withheld. How hard does that give to be doing over 20 years in life for a crime you didn't commit? And then it starts coming out that... Coppers were bent, tampered with evidence, the whole shebang that it was a set-up. How, how do you survive over 20 years in prison? The hardest part is taking the knockbacks when people won't accept the letters that you write and you're putting clear facts like I've just discussed to you. If we were charged with murder together and you're getting information about the murder, the jury should know about that. And you should be asked questions, how come you know so much about this murder if you're charged with the murder? You shouldn't have been acquitted. So when you're getting facts like that, pushed under the carpet, refused to be answered, you know you're in trouble. That was the hardest part. And I thought, when is someone going to stand up and help me? From all the letters I sent, detailed information, clearly set out, not labouring on, I said this, he said that. Constructive documents, easy to follow, easy to digest, factual. And you still never got nowhere. And it wasn't until companies like Rough Justice you know, well-known miscarriage of justice organisation. I think they overturned 17 miscarriage of justices they did. They had their funding taken away. And you think, gosh, they're just about to do a TV programme on me. And then you had trial and error again. But these, these were their one minute gone the next. So you're consistently searching for an avenue of help by sending out all these letters to MPs, journalists and website. You put that up so people can come and see what you've got to say. And that's how Tam Jury came forward through the website. See, because you had a bit of a violent past before, obviously no murders, but 
See, when you get charged with murder, do people believe you that you were innocent, Kev? Or was there people kind of going, nah, I think he's he done it? Well, I was lucky enough to know that people in the system knew I never, because Vincent was always going around bragging about it. Um, some people will never believe you anyway, because there's just the hell-bent, the heavily entrenched views. But, yeah, I had a lot of support through... I said, look, he works all the time on his case. He works all the time, day and night, day and night, no TV. Just in his cell, working on his case, sending letters out, big campaign. And he's done it consistently all these years, and he still does it. I must say something. Why did you not have a TV? Well, I don't think they're that good for the brain. If you use them socially with, you know, your partner or your children, okay, but to sit there channel hopping and flicking is no good for your brain. I like to read me, and I would, although I was always doing my, my casework, I prefer a good book. It's educational, it's motivational, it's better therapy for you. The sentences are that long now, you sit there just chuck, clock, clock, watching nothing, bored. Where if I've got a good book, evening's gone, the week's gone, two weeks are gone. Can't wait to get back to that book. You know yourself, James, you like to read, don't yeah. you? So, uh, yeah, I didn't. And I just worked day and night, rushing around, getting the mail out, get it printed, get it out, get the stickers on the envelopes, miscarriage of justice stickers and all sorts of... I sent every letter recorded delivery to make sure it got there. In 2015 is when you got out. Would you have got out quicker, Kev, if you admitted the crime? Yeah. How long earlier? Well, it goes to show I've known... If you get a tariff, you can go home on your tariff. If you get a recommendation, you have to serve the recommendation and then we will start to look at you. However, that's not quite the case now in some people's uh, positions, but um, I did 20, my tariff was 18. So I probably could have got out into a D category prison before uh, 16 years. Well, I certainly may have had a chance of getting into a D category 16 if I'd put my hands up and done all the courses. What was it like when you got your your lib date through, getting released? Did you know what was coming up? I again, it was. I knew it was coming. I was in Blantyre House by then, so good prison. I was working out. I went to go up on parole, and my probation officer at the time hadn't prepared my paperwork to be released for a permanent address. He left it as a home leave address. So they kept me in over Christmas again. It would have been my first Christmas home, just because the paperwork hadn't been prepared. So I ended up staying home after Christmas. And then I got the answer, and of course you get the answer within 14 days. I was out. It was great. How was that, getting out after 20 years, Kev? Do you know I made a mistake? I turned around and looked at the gates. Don't do that, because it means you might come back. Uh, and I thought, I'm never coming back here. And I went off. Um, went to the Orchard Pub in Ryslip and it's got a big open green there. And it was packed. I said, keep it quiet. I mean, it was kept quiet. Some of my own real close friends didn't really know about it. They didn't know about it. Um, it was, I didn't, in four hours, I didn't get to speak to everybody. They had to get extra bar staff in for the bar. It was a big pub, the Orchard. And the whole green outside was chock-a-block. So it was overwhelming in some instances. But I took to it like a duck to a water. Uh, I had a, a thirst for life. I wanted to get out. I walked across the road. I had no problems crossing the road. I noticed there was a lot more cars on the roads. Uh, 
people had a lot of bumper trainers and different coloured hairs now. A lot of Johnny <laughs> Foreigners in the country. <laughs> Something like uh, Back to the Future, just looking at everybody differently. A lot of foreigners, honestly, like ying, 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 and blooming Polish and all sorts of Romanians. And I thought, oh, I hadn't seen it. So, and that's obviously when the economy was booming, there's a lot of work going on. So I had to adjust to that. It was good. I've, I've really enjoyed it. So, and uh, I took off, went to work straight away. Built what a company. Company? Yeah, I set a company up. And I acquired some contracts in the building trade. Decent contracts. Uh, I think in, over the space of one year into the next, I took 1.7 million off of one company. Uh, and I had other contracts with other companies. I was doing £100,000 a month with insurance work as well with another company. I was doing okay. It was a hard game. You were out the door at 5.30 in the morning, 4.30, travelling up and down the country all the time, seven days a week, having one Sunday off out of every four. Offices and trucks and managing the men and managing the sites. It's not so I would do again. So I, I loved it in terms of work. Provided a good living for myself, I must say. Uh, I could go where I wanted, really. And if I wanted to get a tailor-made suit, for instance, I could. And it's nice to be able to do that when you've just come out of prison. And go to tailors that are... I might take you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> You're a sharp dresser. <laughs> I'm more than happy. You're a sharp dresser. Yeah. Well, Danae Olagori, he's mm. the number one bespoke tailor in the world. He made this jacket and this mm -hmm. shirt, okay? So he's very expensive. But he's got Eric Clapton and Tour de France winners, and he picks his clients, unless they've been referred to him. So I can go to him and get my suit made, all right, admittedly. Uh, he has different price ranges, I have to mm -hmm. say, because he tells the royal family and the Saudis and things like that. But all very good. So I could do that from working hard. Um, and I loved it. But years go quick. Before you know it, gone, gone, gone. You think, God, and you're working, you're tired. And um, I'm not doing that this time. I've got a modular home company, which I researched four years ago. I knew the country was going to go big on modular homes because of modern methods of construction. It far supersedes old conventional building now. Uh and the book, I mean, fitting up and fighting back, I believe, will take me places. I've done speeches at Cambridge, Oxford. Been at Colchester, or just, you know, Terry Marsh was there when I went there with Terry Marsh, and Razor Smith, he knows a, he's a journalist. Great no. guy. Yeah, Oh, no. he's an amazing man. Love Noel, love Noel. There you go. Great All guy. Right, so he's, see him. Noel was, um, couldn't read or write, in prison, got a chap at the cell, son's dead, suicide. He done fuck this man. I think he was doing a life sentence at the time. Started educating himself, learned how to read and write. Now he's got his own publishing company. Phenomenal man. I was with Noel when his son died. Well, yeah. And he was gonna he was gonna do something really where he lost the plot. Mm -hmm. And you, he's in. He put it in his book, and I said, "Listen, put your head on right the way round. That's that's not the way to be going." Because he didn't let him out for his son's funeral either. Yeah, he was gonna do something. Love Noel. And uh, he never did it. Mm -hmm. And he's always said, oh, I'll never forget it, Kevin. You've seen the I just come back from a lay down actually. I'd had a 20, 28 day lay down in Balmarsh Unit. They call it a cooling off period. I was called the first day I went there. I didn't need to be there 28 days. And, uh, you know, he's young again. And I came back and I was on Noel's landing when, like I say, his son died. Sad. Yeah, good friends with a good friend of mine as well, Paul Ferris. Yeah, great man. How do you know Paul? Yeah, through uh, Franklin Prison. 
Yeah, I met him when I went there. Had a drink with him. And yeah, he used to, yeah, he says he used to have like pubs and sales and, and he used to have like a Friday night, like a pub, and he's all drinking the hooch and you partying. You couldn't come to my cell to have a drink with me, unless you was invited, of course. And if you haven't dressed up, you got to dress up like you're going out Friday night. <laughs> In you come, get the music on, have a dance. <laughs> See all the mad dancing booths, people would go on. It was funny. Uh-huh. And a bit of singing. I'm not a very good singer, mm-hmm. but... I believe, James, if I hadn't gone through that sentence laughing and joking and singing, I mean, God, passing out. I've done that a lot lately on that bloody drink, I've got to say, but um, I wouldn't have come out at the other end. And I went to see therapists when I came home and, I mean, I was seeing the top therapist in London, which I paid for. And he said, I'd never known you've spent such long in prison, so long in prison, Kevin, if you hadn't told me. He said, honestly, he said, you're fine. He said, you've, everyone's got a cognitive defect. I said, it's not me, it's my mate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, when I interview people, there's something about you, Kev. You're very intelligent. You're you're bang on the money when it comes to business, other stuff like that. But Thank you. It's, um, obviously, you just got out a couple of days ago, but we'll touch on you. got a recall there as well. Yeah. What was that for? Common assault. Um, shamed of it. So as a lifer... You've got to be in control of your emotions. Now, it doesn't matter, okay, what you do to me, whether you want to spit in my face, scratch my car, kick it, punch it. If I get out of that car and throw you, then I've lost control of my emotions, and that's what I got called back to prison for. What was that like when you says looking around at the gate and saying you'll never be back there to then being back there, doing well for yourself, built businesses, got a good life, to then seeing yourself back in? It's very difficult because I'd let a lot of stuff go, whereas I would never have let it go years before. Uh, if I had a problem with you, I'd come and find, not you per se, but uh, somebody. I'd say, well, let's do what men do best. Get the gloves on or let's have a straightener. And we'll sort it out. So you can't do that when you're a lifer. You can't, people can take absolute liberties with you in your life, knowing that they've only got to make a phone call and you get recalled back in. And I thought, if I've been committing crime to earn a living, then I can justifiably say, right, yeah, I've been recalled to prison. But I've been recalled to prison for being, I believe, uh, I should have walked home, okay, instead of um, my car keys were taken, they was hidden. I couldn't find them, my phone, my wallet, my house keys, so I couldn't leave. And the court told me I should have walked home, which was 50 miles. Yeah, well, they're probably right. I wouldn't have spent 14 months in prison. But it's not as simple as that, as you know. And um, hence, getting recalled to prison for... I wasn't drunk either. For somebody who had consumed some alcohol and was upset. Uh, For something I feel I could have been managed in society for. It was a crime, yeah. I broke the law, got done for common assault. uh, And it was upgraded to assault by beating no beating I've threw the person literally and it's on video so I can you know if anybody wants to bloody see it I could put it up if I wanted to but I won um, I found it very difficult because when I got recalled they said he's been on bail for six months why do I need to be managed back into prison for a common assault or why can't I do therapy outside I've been out nearly five years 
No problems. There's no police intelligence online, they said, whatsoever. So to be recalled into prison for something that I believe, if I wasn't a lifer, I'd have been bound over or something in society and remained free with two businesses. I had a, 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 an overdraft facility for £450,000 with Lloyds in one of my businesses. And it was a lorry agency where you take mucks out the ground and you put materials back in and stuff like that. Soon as I went to prison, took it, shut it down. 14 months, never seen my baby son. COVID came in, so you banged up a lot more. And I thought, I, I found it very difficult in terms of um, accepting. I just didn't think it was, it was, it warranted being me recalled to prison for 14 months when I employed people. And not one or two people. I had 25 staff on the book paying their taxes. Where do you go from here now, Kev? Are you still trying to get your case overturned? Are you just trying to keep the head down, make more money, enjoy life, smile, laugh, dance, go salsa dancing? What's, um, where does Kev and Lane go from here? I'm going to have a mild flirtation. Okay, okay. okay I'm going to... <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to get back to work uh, pretty much soon. I've had 14 months in my company sitting there. I need to get out there get some contracts back on the table. We've got some contracts with uh, limbered up on the table now, so I'm going to just enjoy a few days speaking to people. Um, get back in the gym, because obviously we had no gym in there. See my son, and my son's, but my baby boy, he's, he's three and a half. Obviously, I need to see him, um, some other members of my family. Get back to life. I believe... The book's going to take me places because I've had a number of inquiries already from people in relation to a film and doing some more speeches. I've got a book launch um, which will be advertised and there'll be uh, yourself there and other people there. Yeah, let us know. We'll share, yeah. make sure that's all shared. Show also. Get some people there, mm -hmm. some, uh, some guests of interest, influencers. Um, and then see where it takes me. But I just want to enjoy life again. And I'm probably going to move. Um, I just need a fresh start. Um, and if the book takes off, I mean, it's doing it phenomenally well, um, I must say. And if it continues in that light, this time next year, Rodney. Uh, <laughs> write another book as well. Well, Duncan Campbell, the senior journalist for The Guardian, he's like married to Julie Christie. He's done quite a few books. He's a sheriff of journalists, in my opinion. He read the book and he called up. He said, I've read it. Bang. One go. He said, there must be a follow-on. He said, honestly, he said, it's a really good read. And he's given me a, a fair review for the back. And I've had a few of those reviews come back talking about the book and for instance the other day a gentleman said he picked up he read 100 pages in one go um, other people bookstores have said best book they've read all year last year not this year mm -hmm. so I'm getting that type of response which is it's a positive for me what do you look back at your life Kev what do you, what do you see well you know, yes, people would say to you, they would have liked to have changed some things in their life, and I would have done. I certainly wouldn't have liked to have done the 20 years that I did. But I'm hoping now that the 20 years that I served, 
it has put me in a different position in life where I, I know different people. I do always believe I'd have done well in life because I was way before my time in in the built in industry, whether it's camera security for cars in car parks, uh, recycling, um, sales. I would have done really well, but I think that the opportunities that life can give me now will allow me to better other people's lives, certainly. Better my own life, leave some stuff for my children and my family. You do need money in life, so you can make people happier with a bit of money. So I work a lot with the Emily Ash Trust, Paul Foster, um, children with illnesses. So I'm going to donate some of the book to that charity and SWAT. I'm going to donate some money to SWAT. Um, and there was another charity, Crisis, which I always support. And I'm going to donate so much of that to every single sale to those charities. And then try and do some... It's nice to be nice and it's nice to see people smile, surely. Why can't people just accept that? And it's a great feeling when you see children laughing when they've got terrible illnesses. Or, or adults. Yeah, you can make people laugh. I say laughter's the best medicine. Are you going to try and still fight and get your case overturned? Or are you just going to leave it there and just get on with your life? Yeah, sorry, you asked me that. Well, the Panorama programme on Fitted Up and Fighting Back YouTube shows that my that conviction was uh, found on evidence that was false. So the jury found me guilty on misrepresented evidence. And as Joel Benathan turns on and says, it is a game changer. So I'm due to go back to the Criminal Cases Review Commission shortly. I'm not confident with those, I must say, because Kalisha, the prosecutor, he passed away. He set a foundation up called the Callister Trust, and that was to for trainee barristers. And they'd gone off to work within the CCRC doing their training. So they're never going to overturn my conviction when they're in there under the foundation, are they? It's just not going to happen, is it, surely? And I could never work out why I wasn't getting a fair hit, should I say, at within the CCRC. So, and the former Chief Constable of Police of Hertfordshire was now one of the 14 members CCRC members, commissioners. And he said it was inevitable the staff within the CCRC knew the police officers involved in my case or knew someone or knew them. But this wouldn't cause the impartial observer to form the view of bias. Well, what do you think? Surely, if you worked as a chief constable or your police officer who's, whose colleagues have worked on my case and you're reviewing my case, that's got to be bias. What are your views on that? So I'll be going back to the CCRC based on the Panorama programme. And you have a look at that and you make your mind up what you think of that. And if you don't agree with it, sign the change.org or leave some reviews somewhere. But do something to say you're not happy with it. And I hope to get a, pub, uh, a parliamentary investigation from the back of these podcasts so people can see what I have to say. Purchase the book. I don't make nothing for the book, very little. It will not make me rich. Not as, as it's doing at the moment. It'll make other people, which, well, Amazon charger, <laughs> I must say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it will overturn my conviction, hopefully. That's why the book was written, uh, and that's why I'm doing these. So To keep spreading the message. And, spreading the uh, message. You still in contact with anybody from back in the day in prison, category A's? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, what, how are they? I had a call from Kenny Collins, 
uh, Hatton Garden burglar. Kenny's a good old friend of mine. Every Christmas, without fail, 500 quid, found its way to me wherever I was, in whatever prison I was. Fundraising dues. And there's many other people, I won't mention their names, every Christmas, wallop, the money's there. Transferred, sent in, recorded delivery, registered post. Very well looked after, for I believe for just being a decent person. No other reason. Uh, people think you're okay. Um, so Kenny phoned me on the way here. I'll be going to see him. Old school criminal. Don't believe in hurting women and children. Won't talk to staff, just he's that way. Um, unless he has to. Nothing wrong with him, but he just, no, you don't do that. Um, I'll be going to see him. And a lot of other people that I do, you know, I've got time for. that I've got... They're good people in their heart. They may have committed, done something wrong, but it doesn't make them bad people. Were you ever done with Charlie Bronson? I was yeah, with Charlie. I wrote about Charlie. I think Charlie may be getting out next year, this year, next year. They'll try to get an appeal. Charlie needs to be put on a farm with his paintings and left alone. When you're in that cell 23 hours a day, nowhere else to go apart from that yard and you're put back in that cell, believe me, you would kick off because you're driven stir-crazy. Mm -hmm. And look at him. He's done really well. For anybody watching, Kev, that's maybe want to get involved in a life of crime, that's maybe battling with their own demons, what advice would you give for them? Go to work. You're better off free. I don't believe in the gangster films where the gangsters are hard, tough cookies, because then the kids want to be them. Like Angels with Dirty Faces. Loved that film. Yeah. What did he hear? What did he say? Uh, he was crying, James, didn't James he? Cagney. James Cagney. James you dirty the, rat. Yeah, the priest told me cry, though, because he didn't want to make him look tough because the kids looked up to him. That's it. Cry. Yeah, people always ask me the question, do you not get scared interviewing people that's been convicted of murder and bank robbers? I say no, because what I see is vulnerability. I see is all battling. doesn't matter who it is. Like, you tend to see we're all in the struggles. Some people get led down different paths. Yes, I do believe that. You make your own choices in life. People do make mistakes, but the beautiful, beautiful thing about life is people also change. Everybody's in the same journey. We're just trying to get through life. We're all, yeah. we're all just going through, making it up as we go along. But as long as you're not harming anyone, then life can be good. You learn. You can't change the pain of the past, but what you can do is learn from it. I believe you're a man that learns from it, but you're a very intelligent man. Very. Well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I won't watch the news. For all you people out there, watch happy news. If you've got Alexa... Ask Alexa for happy news. Hearing good things that are going on in the world. Why do I want to watch bad things all the time? So I try to focus on positive thoughts and if a bad thought comes into my head, I'll just bad thought, park it up, leave it there. Yeah. Kev, for all coming on today and telling your story, Thank brother. You. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank and you. And I wish you all the best for the future. Good luck with the case as well and hopefully it gets overturned. Thank you very much. Thank Get you, out brother. there and buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> You can also watch my podcast on my YouTube channel. The link is in the bio if you'd like to subscribe. You can follow me on my social media platforms to see who my next guest is. Follow me on Facebook at JamesEnglish11, Twitter, JamesEnglish0, Instagram, JamesEnglish2. You can also download these podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Sports Social Podcast Network.